I know a lot of you have probably sent a daughter off to college. You survived, right? Yeah. Just give me a couple seconds here. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 49 down to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Luke 9, beginning in verse 49. Let's read together. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he he and his disciples went to another village. As they walked along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But Jesus replied, First, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who has put a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's pray. Father, we want to give you praise this morning and thanks for all that you have done in our lives, opening our eyes and our ears, allowing us the privilege, the great privilege, the unparalleled privilege to know you, to hear your word. Father, we pray this morning as we read it, as we look into it, that you would, again, allow it to set our hearts free, to be good news, in a dry and parched land. In Jesus' name, amen. So I told you we're going to do a short little series, uh, five sermons, and they're going to come from the book of Luke, and they're going to be primarily on the subject or the theme of generosity. Generosity in every area of our lives. Now, as I start this, I I, I feel, I want to just, you know, full disclosure, so... 
a number of years ago when I was in seminary, one of my professors, a guy named uh, Ed Clowney, um, talked about, and for the first time I heard the idea of what he called doxological worship. And that was the first time I had ever heard that phrase used. And when Ed Clowney talked about doxological worship, which you, know, you may be thinking, what in the world is that? Um, it's, it's worship that flows from deep-seated praise in your heart, right? So a doxology is praise to God. Doxological worship is worship that is, it's, it's starting, you know, kind of down here in your bowels, if you will, and it's just coming up. It's coming out. You, you can't help it is the idea. And Ed Clowney talked about doxological worship. He talked about doxological living. He talked about doxological giving. He, you know, he, he, and what he was saying was that our lives are to be driven by this doxological praise of our Father. Right? So everything that we do, we're, we're doing it from a heart um, that is just, you know, compelled to do it for the glory of God. You can think of the Apostle Paul's, right? Uh, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, um, anything, do it to the glory of God. And that is this doxological idea. And the, the section of sermons that we're going to do as we talk about generosity, right? We could just say it at the outset. It's generosity that is going to be, and I think you'll see it every week, it's driven by this gospel passion, right? We're compelled almost to be generous um, in the areas of our lives because of who he is and, and because of his generosity towards us, right? Um, and, and that really is the idea. And so I would just say, kind of as we begin, um, the idea, the formulation of these sermons is not anything unique with me. Um, you, you could trace them back to Ed Clowney and Tim Keller and and uh, and guys like that. Um, and so I'm going to be following to a very high degree a lot of their work as we as we do this. So this morning we're going to look at these passages, um, uh, chapter nine, chapter ten here of of Luke. And what we're going to do is we're going to start at the bottom. We're going to start at Luke 10, 1 to 2. And, um, and when you look at that passage, right, what we see is Jesus sending out the uh, 72, right? Um, verse 1, after the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him and to every town and place he was about to go, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, if you look down a little bit further, we didn't. I, I wanted to keep it somewhat short, but if you look down further in chapter 10, what you'll see is what they did. What did these 70 or 72, we'll talk about that in a minute, what did they do when they went out? Well, uh, they had at least three functions. They were preaching the word, they were preaching about the kingdom, they were driving out demons, and they were healing the sick. So those are the three compartments, if you will, the, the three jobs that these 70 or 72 had as they went out into these towns and villages. Now, someone has taken those, they linked them up, they said essentially, right, preaching about the kingdom or pronouncing the kingdom is persuading the mind. So they were busy persuading the mind. They were, they were driving out demons. They were liberating souls. They were setting 
the captives free, if you will. Um, and then they were healing the sick. They were sustaining the needs of the body. And those are the those are the things that these folks were doing as they went into these towns and villages. Now think about that, right? Preaching the kingdom, driving demons, healing the sick. If I were to ask you a question, who who's responsible for those functions? Preaching the kingdom, driving out demons. Some of you are having really a, a large amount of trouble with that. I get it. Just Just hang in there. And healing the sick. Who, who would you say? Who's responsible for that? Whose job is it? Yeah. Kent's pointing at me. Right? You'd say like, well that sounds a lot like the, the priest or the, or the pastoral function, right? So you and Marion, that's, that's on you, alright? We'll just sit back and watch. And, and you would be right. Because that is, those are largely what we would call the, the priestly function of the church, of the people of God. So, so it's interesting then, isn't it, that what he is doing here is he's sending out the 72. These are not the 12 disciples, the, the apostles. That's not who Jesus is sending out at this point. He is sending out 72, if you will, laypersons. And, and, and we know that because, right, if you go back, if you go back to the beginning of chapter nine, another section we didn't read, if you go back to the beginning of chapter nine, what you'll see is that there, Jesus sends out the twelve. Okay, so he's already sent out his twelve disciples, and he sent them out, and guess what jobs he gave them? Take a stab. Three. Preach. Drive out demons. Heal sick. Same job. He's already sent out his disciples. Now, if you were going to look at the crowd here, you're going to look at, you know, you're going to look at these disciples, and then you're going to look at the disciples. You've got the twelve. Those are clearly the guys that Jesus is investing his time and energy. He is investing very heavily in the twelve. But he's also sending out the seventy-two. And so, people have noticed Essentially, this this seventy or seventy-two, and, and the reason that number is different. Anybody using the NASB? Any any New American Standards? There's only one NASB guy here, and that would make sense. It's Hank, right? We know there's a there's a whole cult of NASB people out in the world, and uh, you fit that, Hank, right? The love to study group, okay? Uh, the NASB, I think. Are the, the old American Standard Version has 70. Does it have 70? Yeah, it's got 70. Now, you know, okay, what's the... Uh, here's the deal. So that number, 70 or 72, comes from Genesis chapter 10 and what's called the Table of Nations. And there are 70 or 72, depending upon whether or not you're using the Hebrew text or whether or not you're using the Greek translation of Genesis 10. Way more information than you probably wanted to know. But that's why there's sometimes a difference between the 70 or 72. Regardless, it matches up. All right? So the number matches up with Genesis chapter 10 and the table of nations. And so this number, this Jesus didn't just go, okay, let's see, uh, let's, um, we got, we got 72 here, I'll just send out those 72. No, he drew 72 for a reason. And that reason was to reflect the table of nations, that number of completeness, if you will, of the nations. And so what he is doing is he's, he's taking regular, 
ordinary people and he's sending them out into the world, into the mission field to do service, to to love the communities around them. And their function is exactly the same function that he gave to the disciples at the beginning of chapter 9. Preach the kingdom, drive out demons, liberate the soul, and tend to the needs of the body. And so Jesus is sending these folks out to perform this service. That's what they're doing. They are a representative number of the church, and their job and their function is to go out into the world and to serve. To serve, because look at what he says, right? The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out what? More workers. And what he has just done is he's grabbed 72 regular Joes and he's sent them out into the world. And that is a picture for us, if you will, of Jesus saying to the church, you're not consumers. You are providers. You, you aren't here just to consume the services of religious men or women. You are here, right, in a sense, to be built up in your faith to go out into the world. Because Jesus is busy sending workers, laborers. And these aren't, the, the laborers that he is, he is sending aren't the professional clergy. They are the church that is being scattered out into the world. And we say this all the time, right? God never blesses you without also making you what? A blessing. He blesses you in order that you would flip around and go out and be a, a blessing. That, that's the message that comes right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, look, you have been burdened with great affliction. Why? So that you can then be ministers of reconciliation to other people with great affliction. That's the message of 2 Corinthians, right? He is saying he's taken this gospel message in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He has put it in clay pots. He has sent you out into the world in order to be ministers of reconciliation to those around you. And so what you're doing then is you're taking your life, the things that are passionate about your heart, the things that have happened to you and crushed you and, and been a burden to you that you've, you've navigated through, you take those things and you minister them to others. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. And so, that's the idea is Jesus is taking these folks and he's sending them out. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Think about that. For you are God's, here's the first thing. You are God's handiwork. You're God's handiwork. You're His poem. You're His masterpiece. You're His painting. You're His sculpture. What, your DNA, your life, your, whatever it is, whoever you are, your fingerprint. It's different from everybody else's. He made you. You are His handiwork for what? 
to go and to do good works. Service. To go and serve. And guess what? He prepared it in advance that you would do it. You know what that means? I mean, Paul is just, that's, that's just general to the church. He's saying, you are his servants. You're his ministers. God created you to go. Um, and to go out into the world. A, f- a few years ago, just thinking about this, this idea, right? So that, that idea that I'm being sent requires you to be something of a generous person because the second you, you're not just going to some nebulous, you know, whatever. You're, you're going to, to people because that's who we minister to. And so you're loving people, you're serving people, you're giving to people, you're meeting people's needs, you're doing the three things that, that the apostles and the, and the uh, disciples who were sent out were doing. You're preaching the kingdom. Right? You're sharing the word. You're sharing about the kingdom. You're liberating souls. And you're meeting the needs of hurting people. That's the threefold function that we're sent into. And that requires a, a, a level of generosity. You, you have to have your heart opened up because it's going to require that you are giving. You're giving time. You're giving energy. You're giving capital. You're giving emotional capital to people. And some of them will take a lot of it. They, they will suck that emotional capital right out of you. And you'll have to retreat back here to get filled up again. And to the word and to the, to the gospel. Several years ago, there was a study that was done. And I, and I just came across this book this week as I was planning for this. And I was looking at this idea of generosity. If, if any of you have read this, please let me know. I'd really love to, to, to get your feedback on it. Um, but uh, the two authors, a guy named Christian Smith and Hilary Davison, wrote a book. And the title of it is The Paradox of Generosity, Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose. Now, these are two Harvard PhDs. One of them's a PhD, one of them's a PhD student, okay? And they're writing this book about generosity, and it's remarkable because it's not, it's not necessarily a Christian book. But we like to say a lot of times, all truth is God's truth. And so they've tapped into something, and the something that they've tapped into is that, oh, guess what? Radical generosity produces in a lot of instances, radical, healthy living. It's one of the most comprehensive studies of American giving habits that was ever conducted. Some of their findings include lower depression rates among Americans who donate more than 10% of their incomes. That's not a, uh, that's not a plug, right? Just, it's just a grab here. 41% say they rarely or never experience depression versus 32% for everyone else. And giving away money isn't the only way to reap the psychological rewards of generosity. Americans who are, who are very giving in relationships, being emotionally, emotionally available and hospitable, are much more likely to be in excellent health than those who are not. Isn't that amazing? Like, these researchers in 2010 did, it's the largest amount of research ever done on the subject in our country. They went out and they 
they researched people. And what did they find out? People who are radically generous, oh, by the way, just happen to be radically happy and generally experience better health. Now, that's not a reason for you to be radically generous. It's a byproduct of the fact that God has called us to be radically generous. And I love the part that they talk not merely or only about money, but they talk about the generosity of relationships, of giving, of building that community. That's where a lot of work is done in the church. God created you so that you would, in turn, be his workmen doing good works. That's what it looks like when we're generously serving others. Here is the turn. Here's the twist. You're not going to be good for people. You're not going to be radically generous unless you have first given yourself away to Jesus. Unless you're radically into that relationship, the generosity part will will be a massive burden to you because you'll feel like you're supposed to be doing it. And when you are doing something because you're supposed to be doing it, it's not doxological. The root matters. And so what is the root? If you back up, You'll see there's a section here. They're walking along the road. It begins in uh, verse 57. They're walking along the road, and, and a man says to Janetta, there are three episodes here. The first man comes to Jesus, right? And he says, what? I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I am with you. Now, you know, that guy shows up here. I mean, he's VBS the first week, okay? You know? I mean, he's he's... Buddy will have him in the mountains of West Virginia the second week. Um, but we're going to put that guy right to work. Why? You, you, you're excited? You're, you want to be a part of us? You're, you're interested in what we're doing? This guy just comes and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's been pointed out. Essentially what you have here is you have one eager person who's coming, they're coming on real strong, right? And Jesus rebuffs him. He says, hold on, partner, you need to understand who I am and what you're getting into. So what is he saying? Jesus says to him, foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, hey, buddy, look, before you come and join me, you need to know something. It's not, I'm not conquering armies. I'm not winning political elections. I'm, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Are, are you sure you want to join this bandwagon? You sure you want to get on this train? You need to understand what you're in for. Because it is not, it does not end well. I'm fixing to die on a cross. Hello? I mean, he is putting the brakes. He's saying, listen, you need to know what it is you're getting into before you get into it. And so he puts the brakes on for the man. And then and then there are two others, right? And we'll just link them together because they both have to do with the same thing. The first guy comes and says, uh, or the, the Lord taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, 
uh, follow me. And the man says, first, let me go bury my father. First, let me bury my father. And then there's another man, and uh, Jesus responds to him. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. And then another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And what is, what, what is he doing? So he's calling people, right? He's saying, go, come follow me, which is also an invitation to what's going to happen at the beginning of chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, which is what? You're going to follow Jesus, and he's going to do what with you? He's going to send you out. Right? It, following Jesus as a disciple necessarily entails service in his church. You, you can't divorce the two. You, you can't have one without having the other. And so that's what that's an invitation to. Come follow me, and if you're following Jesus, he is going to send you out into the world. And he is going to make you a blessing to other people because that's what he does. And so he's got these two individuals. Both of them have the same issue. And the same issue is that in that day, the society was very patriarchal. Think, I don't know, Mississippi, right? Where family units are like really tight in almost a strange kind of a way. No, I'm just joking. Um, have you ever seen one of these? There's... Okay, Um, the family unit was different. It was heavier. So you didn't do something without the family being a part of that happening. So you didn't get married, you didn't get a job, you didn't, you certainly weren't going to go follow Jesus unless you had the approval of the clan, of the father, of of the familial relationship. They all had to be on board in order for you to do what you were going to do. And Jesus comes along and he says, look, come follow me. And the guy says, first, I'd love to, but first, I've got to go bury my father. Okay, so he's he's got a familial relationship that he has to take care of. And what does Jesus say? Essentially what Jesus, when he says, let the dead bury their dead, he's not talking about let the spirit, let the, the physically dead bury the physically dead. He's saying, let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are also spiritually dead. He's saying, if you're, if you're going to be alive with me, let's go. In both instances, there's a, there's a word. And it's the word first. They both say, Lord, I'll, I'll do it, but first, let me go handle my family. First, let me go do X, Y, and Z. And what does Jesus say both times? No. It's, it, it's not, I'm not an addition to your life. There can't be any, if there's something else that's first, then Jesus is necessarily what? Second. And he says, I can't be second. I mean, think about it this way. So the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the responsible party in the creation of everything. So think about it like this. Jesus walks up. He's the create, he created the world. 
He created the universe. He created the galaxies far, far away. Okay? And He has now come to you and He's saying to you, I want you to be a part of my team. Is that when you go, uh, let me check my day planner, Jesus, and let's see. Uh, gotcha. I got a spot for you next Saturday. How about that? Will that work? You see how ludicrous that sounds? Like I'm going to add in the creator of my of my of the universe, and I'll put him on my calendar for you know a period down the road. Jesus says, "No, I'm first. I have to be because of who I am by the very nature of." who I am and what we're doing, I'm first in your life. And so they were offering to him, let me go tend to the most important things in my life, and then I'll tend to you. And Jesus says, no, I have to be the most important thing in your life. Does that sound radical? (laughs) Man, I was going to a Presbyterian church. I didn't think we were that... Sold out. That's radical. That's what radical serving begins to look like. Because you're not going to get to the, you're not going to get to the radically being sent part unless you are connected to a radical savior who sends you. And here's what I would say. Those two will crush you if you don't get the third point. Right? Because you will be burdened with I really want to be sold out with Jesus, but I've got a lot of stuff going on. And I really want I really want to experience that service part, but I, I don't know if I can be that radical about it. And this is where we get to the doxological part. And because something other than guilt has to be your motivator. If there isn't something besides guilt motivating you, it'll crush you. You'll end up angry, burnt out, thrown on the side. You'll be a miserable lot to be around if guilt is what drives you both to Jesus and to ministry. But what about grace? If you look at the next section, you'll see it, verses 49 down to 55. Master, said John, we saw someone driving a demon out in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. What does Jesus say? So here's the situation. Right? The disciples, James and John, they see somebody, and he's doing religious work out there. And they see this happening, and they tell Jesus, Jesus, we saw this guy. He's not one of us. And he was out there doing things in your name and pretending that he was one of us. Do you want us to call him out on it? Do you, do you want us to uh, stop him? And Jesus says, don't stop him. For whoever is not against you is for you. Wow. That's remarkable. The next one's even more remarkable. And, and what happens there is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, okay? So he's heading to Jerusalem. He sends out the advance party to go into a town. It's the Samaritan village. They go there to the Samaritan village to get things prepared for Jesus and the disciples' arrival. They go there and they say, what, oh, you want a spot for Jesus? Okay, uh, we got a couple bed and breakfast for you here. Well, by the way, where's he going? Oh, he's going to Jerusalem. Oh, he ain't staying here. 
And so they put the kibosh on Jesus staying there. And the disciples are furious, right? They can't believe it. Like, you're going to refuse Jesus? And so they ask him, hey, Jesus, they, uh, they, they told us that uh, there's no room. How about, uh, Lord, do you want us to uh, call down fire on him and destroy him? And that may seem a little bit odd, but, but just a little, a couple of, of verses prior to all of this is the transfiguration, okay? And at the transfiguration, two people that had something to do with fire show up with Jesus, and, uh, and they are Moses and Elijah, alright? And so maybe fire, calling down fire on stuff, or fire being a part of the overall motif was in their brain or something, I don't know. But they say, hey, look, how about we call down fire on that town? Burn them up because they're opposed to you. And what does Jesus tell them? No. Right? In fact, verse 55, we don't even really get it. He just turned and rebuked them. And then in, they went on to another village. That's really strange. Like rejection of Jesus is what is, you know, rejection of association with Jesus, rejection of offering their town to you. You think, okay, right? I mean, this is, this is Jesus. And he's not, he's not excited about people who aren't in favor of him. But isn't it interesting? He doesn't want fire called down on him. He doesn't want him, he doesn't want the disciples to run after these guys and to, and to rebuke them and to tell them their, instead Jesus rebukes their attitude. And what Jesus is showing is a tremendous amount of grace. And what he's telling us is, I didn't come to judge. I came to offer myself as a ransom for many. That's radical grace. That's the radical grace that we see in Jesus' life. Jesus came, right, not to pour out wrath on villages that didn't receive him, but to offer himself up for them. I mean, Jesus is going to go to the cross for that Samaritan village which would not welcome him. And that gospel will be available for them. Listen, that is the radical grace that Jesus offers. You can reject him for 99 years. Bend the knee. Trust him as your Lord and Savior, and go to glory. Because He's that gracious. And His news is that good. That is the radical grace, right? That when you see it, when you taste it, when you savor it, unlocks and opens up, first, a radical relationship with Jesus, and second, Radical devotion to service in his church. Now, where do you have to serve? Who do you have to serve? Where are you going to go serve? Where are you serving? Does it meet the criteria? You know what? Just find a place. Just find a place. And I, and I would say, you know, think of something in your life like this. I'm going to do worship plus two. I'm going to attend worship regularly because it's good for your soul and it's what we do as we're called together as God's people. And then 
I'm going to do two other things. I'm going to serve at least one other place, and I'm going to invest somewhere else in a Bible study or a fellowship group where I can meet and get to know and grow with other Christians. Think about that in your life. Worship plus two. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the message as we see Jesus sending people out, people that were joined to him in a radical way. Radical because, quite frankly, the world is not headed in Jesus' direction. Radical because he calls us to die to self and to live for him. Father, we, we would ask you this morning that you would allow us to see and to know that amazing grace that Jesus himself showed while he was here and in his death, his, rex, his uh, resurrection, his ascension. Father, we would see that amazing grace and it would transform our living for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.